of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. Now, before we get into the meat of this episode, I would just like to address a couple of things that have happened in the interim period between the last episode and this one. Um, it's been very sad to learn of the deaths of several people in the hard rock and heavy metal community. The first one was, uh, the other day, it was Mike Howe from Metal Church. Metal Church, obviously... Uh, pretty popular band from the late 80s and early 90s in the thrash metal scene um i can't claim to be a massive fan of metal church but i did go and see them in dublin in 2017 at a headlining show in the voodoo lounge and i thought it was a fantastic show to me they were like one of the better thrash bands in that there was always a lot of melody to their songs and that's something i kind of seek out in trash um i don't necessarily like songs that are just riff driven or you know coarse vocal driven but there was always a lot of melody to those metal church songs especially the albums that mike howe featured on and i was lucky enough to meet mike howe after the show in dublin in 2017 and i went up to him and chatted to him very briefly and asked him for a photo and he said yes very graciously so i did get a a photo with him and um, i just noticed after the show like every single member of metal church they sat down and they did a free meet and greet and they did a free signing session there was no extra ticket price for them to sign your cds or your albums or whatever they sat there and they chatted to anybody who wanted to and they signed anything you wanted them to sign and even after that when I met the band outside, before they got on their tour bus, they were happily chatting there to fans and happily signing items and generally just being quite friendly and sound. And Mike was at the forefront of that. He was just a really, really nice bloke. And I, it, it's very sad to hear that that, uh, that he died at such a young age of 55. Um, so, yeah, that was the first one in a week of bad news, unfortunately, because... On the same day, I learned of the death of Joey Jordison, who was a drummer in Slipknot back in the original lineup. Um, not any longer, but I can't claim to be a, a fan of Slipknot, but I certainly know that they were extremely influential to the current heavy metal scene, that, that there's no question about that. And um, again, he died at a very young age. I think he might have been 46 or maybe some something around that age. And... I know he had an illness and whatever, but like it just, I don't know, um, when you hear about deaths of musicians, it's it's always kind of 
a shock because these people seem larger than life and they seem like they're part of our lives and sometimes if we're a massive fan of the band they seem even like they're our friends so um it's a very sad thing to hear when a musician dies especially when two die and then today as i record this the day after i heard about those two deaths i've just found out that dusty hill the bass player from zz top has died I mean, what can you say about ZZ Top? Again, like the massively influential band, um, an iconic band. If you don't know them for the music, you will know them for their beards. And like that, that might seem like kind of a shallow thing to say at this juncture, but they were iconic. You knew what they looked like. You knew who they were. If you didn't know a lick of their music, I remember when I was a young child. Um, one of my sisters was buying a music magazine, and it came with a set of cards and. Uh, maybe uh, it was something MTV related I can't remember but there was a set of music cards and there was one of ZZ Top and there was all sorts of artists included in this like I think Whitney Houston was one of them this like this is the early 90s whatever or 1990 even but I, I remember always looking at the ZZ Top one and going Jesus Christ those guys have long beards and I was just fascinated by it so from a very young age from four or five years old I knew who ZZ Top were and then later I learned about their music and everybody knows the song legs and sharp dressed man and going back earlier than that like obviously waiting for a bus lagrange uh, and obviously like um, sharp dressed man all of that stuff like um yeah so another blow to the rock and metal community that came in quick succession people like to say things come in threes i don't know i don't really believe in that because i think that's such a convenient and easy way to consolidate debts to make maybe make yourself feel a bit better about them or something like that but um this certainly did come in a series of three and hopefully that's the last of it now um so yeah that was a series of unfortunate events and um hopefully that's the last that we'll hear of, of deaths in the hard rock and heavy metal community for quite some time but it wasn't only bad news this week we also had the return of talking maiden i think the most eagerly anticipated podcast ever actually i can't think of a podcast that i've anticipated more eagerly and certainly the people that i connect with on twitter um it certainly seems like the most eagerly anticipated music related podcast ever and by god did they do it justice we got two hours of josh and nesbitt discussing everything that's happened with Iron Maiden since they last spoke to us from the live album Nights of the Dead to all the rumours surrounding the new album to speculation about the new tour to everything else in between and I for one was delighted to see the return of Talking Maiden as I've said on many occasions and I'm going to say it again Talking Maiden was the inspiration for me to record my own heavy metal podcast later on Nesbitt's uh, Night Demon heavy metal podcast was an inspiration for how I structured Ark Sabbath with the way he speaks to his guests. It's structured like an audio documentary and not just a, an interview segment kind of podcast. And in general, I find inspiration from the enthusiasm of Josh and Nesbitt to continue doing Talking Maiden, even after the podcast had finished. But they came back and it was as good an episode as they've ever done. Talking about podcast inspiration i also feel the need again to shout out rye from sabbath bloody podcast if it weren't for sabbath bloody podcast i never would have bothered doing this black sabbath arc 
having listened to that a while back, it inspired me to do a series on Black Sabbath, but also get the input from fans um, and people and pundits and podcasters. So I'd like to shout out Rai again and just say, if not for a Sabbath Bloody Podcast, I would not have done this Black Sabbath arc that I've been doing for the last several months. And I continue to listen to Sabbath Bloody Podcast and... In order to make sure that I'm not repeating stuff that was mentioned on that, I continue to listen to Rise episodes. But as a standalone podcast, you should listen to Sabbath Buddy Podcast. If you've never listened to it, if you liked Rise contributions to Ark Sabbath so far, go and seek it out. He does an episode on every single album from Black Sabbath. He moves on to Ozzy Osbourne's career later on. And it's just an excellent and in-depth podcast that is worth your time. One more small note on other people's podcasts. I recently again appeared on Maiden A to Z and we talked about the um, aftermath of the single The Writing on the Wall and we also speculated on the upcoming Iron Maiden album Senjutsu. So if you want to have a listen to that go and check out the Maiden A to Z podcast feed and you will see an episode called Man Predictions I think it's called and I think it's because I said that phrase during the episode and uh, Jonathan thought that was quite funny and decided to name the episode that so it's called man predictions because it's a, a group of men sitting around predicting things but yeah um if you still haven't got enough of the iron maiden speculation and predictions and hype go and listen to maiden a to z and jonathan is obviously a guest on arc sabbath from last week's episode onwards so if you enjoyed what Jonathan had to say, go and check out his own podcast. It's Made Night Said. He does with his friend Eric Shaw. Now, moving on to the matter at hand. So, last week you heard my guests talk about the transition from vocalists between Ian Gillen and Glenn Hughes. We talked a lot about the politics in Black Sabbath. We talked a lot about who is in Black Sabbath and what is in a band name and when does it become an inauthentic version of the band. We talked about all sorts of different things, but we didn't really talk about the music. Now, I know Rye had some contributions to make towards the end of the episode about the actual songs that featured on Seventh Star, but as a group or as a, an episode, it didn't really touch on the music that was released during that time, and I feel it's a disservice to that album to completely skip by it and not actually discuss the music because there was plenty of good music on that album. Many will argue that it's not a Black Sabbath album. You heard from several people last week who kind of planted their flag after Born Again or, or maybe even earlier than that and said, anything after this, it's not really Black Sabbath. And that's completely fair. You know, it's each to his own. And everyone kind of decides at some point with a band like Black Sabbath when it becomes too much for them or when they think well, they're really kind of taking the piss at this point. I, I, I've, I've lost interest. And that's fine. That's that's an individual take on, on a band. But the album that was released, Seven Star, did contain some quite good music. So let's just have a quick chat about that. So we open with the song In For The Kill. Uh, for me, that has a really nice riff. The vocals are not really Black Sabbath. They're multi-layered. Um, it's not something I've really heard before in the previous albums we certainly didn't hear any of that on Born Again and maybe on the Dio albums there was a bit of multi-tracking but it certainly wasn't to the extent that we hear on In For The Kill. Uh, but the song has a really nice chorus and I would recommend this song to somebody who was looking for a nice 80s hard rock song but wasn't necessarily looking for a good Black Sabbath song. Oh 
on to the song No Stranger to Love. This is something that will probably be familiar to you. This is the most popular song from that era. And to me, all I can say about this is it's an 80s power ballad. And it's a very good 80s power ballad, if overlooked 80s power ballad. Is it Black Sabbath? Again, that really comes down to your definition of what constitutes Black Sabbath. If Tony Iommi is playing on a track, does that mean it's Black Sabbath to you? If so, well then this song's Black Sabbath. If you have a different definition of what Black Sabbath is, well then maybe this isn't Black Sabbath. But forgetting the band name, this is a very good song. And if you like 80s hard rock, give it a go. Following that, we have a song called Turn to Stone. This is an excellent Tony Iommi riff. But on this track, funnily enough, I think uh, Glenn Hughes sounds a bit like Ian Gillen, which is funny because he succeeded Ian Gillen in Deep Purple. And he's gone and succeeded Ian Gillen again in Black Sabbath here. So I think he has a kind of a Gillen-esque vocal style on this one. Following that, we have a musical interlude called Sphinx. Maybe a bit of a throwaway synth track. But as you'll hear later on this episode... Some people don't consider those tracks throwaway and really enjoy those Black Sabbath instrumentals. The song Seven Star, the title track from the album, it's kind of has a very slow lead in. It's a slow and brooding song. I'll say it's quite atmospheric. It's definitely worth a listen, but to me, maybe it's not reminiscent of what we would expect from Black Sabbath. Uh, that leads into Danger Zone, which is kind of an 80s film soundtrack song. Um, I could envisage this song being in Top Gun or Predator or, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Last Action Hero. No, that wasn't 80s, that was 90s. Um, but it was, it's one of those songs that you could easily insert into an 80s action film and it wouldn't feel out of place. That's not to say it's a bad song. I quite enjoy it. Um, we have Heart Like a Wheel, a very bluesy rock song. To me, it, it sounds the least like Black Sabbath on this album. It's more of a showcase for Glenn Hughes' vocals uh, than anything else. Uh, the penultimate song on the album is Angry Heart. It's kind of a plodding, long song to me. It doesn't really go anywhere. And finally, we have In Memory, which in my mind, is a beautiful ballad. Apparently, it's about Tony Iommi's father. Um, it's very melodic. It's very heartfelt. It's, uh, it's it's probably like the most emotional ballad Black Sabbath have ever done with any of their singers. And maybe you might disagree with that. You can let me know. But In Memory is a fantastic ending track on this album. And I recommend that you listen to it.
So the next era in Black Sabbath wasn't just a change of singer, it was two changes of singer because during the Seven Star Tour, Glenn Hughes was unable to continue after five shows and had to be replaced by Ray Gillen. Here's Philip Trummer talking about Glenn Hughes' departure and also his opinion on the album Seventh Star and where it fits into the Black Sabbath catalogue as we didn't get these opinions on the last episode of Ark Sabbath. Well, and he got punched out early on, I think by someone in the road crew and uh, there was, something was pushed, something happened. I mean, there was, um, man, I forget exactly what it was, but it hindered him from properly singing as well, which then also impacted his performance and eventually led to him being ousted and replaced by Ray Gillen. Uh, Seventh Star would fare much better if it was not uh, tagged as a Black Sabbath album. It's a cool hard rock album, um, but it really doesn't hold up anywhere in the in the Sabbath canon. So with, you know, with that said, I just, I kind of look at it as an anomaly and I just kind of treat it that way. And that's when everything was kind of really falling apart for, for Tony with, with lineups and people. And it, it was his intention to make it a solo album, but they just would not let him. It sounds like Don Arden and fair enough. So I think we always need to take that into account. That would be the fair thing to do. And, you know, it's a fine a hard rock album. It's, it's, it's really not terrible. Now, Ray Gillen went on to complete the Seven Star Tour and actually went on to record a version of the album Eternal Idol. But he fell out with the band at some point and his version of the Eternal Idol was never released. So subbing in for him was Tony Martin, who would go on to record four further Black Sabbath albums. So in total, Tony Martin recorded five studio albums of Black Sabbath, more than any other singer than Ozzy Osbourne. Naturally, my guests had a lot of opinions on Tony Martin, how he fit into Black Sabbath, what the transition was like from Glenn Hughes to him, and in general, Tony Martin's place in the legacy of Black Sabbath. And I feel those comments are best placed here at the start of the Tony Martin era. So here are some comments from my guests about the Ray Gillen situation, how he replaced Glenn Hughes, how Tony Martin fit in as a replacement for Ray Gillen, and how Tony Martin fits into the overall Black Sabbath picture. We also, of course, have the Tony Martin version of Eternal Idol versus the Ray Gillen version of Eternal Idol. Here's Alejandra with her thoughts on Ray Gillen, Tony Martin, and Eternal Idol. Right. So, yeah, when I when I first became aware of uh, you know the existence of the of the Ray uh, Gillen versions, I was really curious. You know, Ray Gillen is one of my absolute favorite vocalists i i adore his voice i am very much aware of all the controversy surrounding him you know regarding his uh, lifestyle and, and and the circumstances that led to his early death unfortunately um but um yeah i mean regardless of all of that i just i just love him i think he had one of the greatest voices and had he not died so young i think he would have gone on if he had gotten his act together, because that was another another problem with him, I think he would have gone on to do great things, you know. Um, yeah, it's a shame that we have so so few recordings of his voice. So so definitely knowing that there was uh, a copy of of this, uh, you know, of, of the Eternal Idol and and the version that he had uh, sang in uh, was was a great discovery. I on a first listen, I have to say that I was you know again because I was I was um, I was really happy to to have. Uh, come across it and I, I 
I loved it. You know, I, I loved his his version of of the songs. And and on the first listen, I was almost sure that he had done a better job than Tony Martin in in singing them. But on on a closer listen, let's say on closer um, subsequent uh, listenings of of them, I, I I do realize that his voice lends itself better to some of the tracks, whereas Tony is is better in in some of the others, like. I think, for example, that Tony probably has a more more of a I don't know like a classic heavy metal voice. Okay, so probably he's better in in tracks like The Shining, for instance, or Ancient Warrior. Whereas Gillen having more of a bluesy sort of voice, I think he just kills it on say born to lose for example i love that song that's my absolute favorite song in this record and i think he he does a much better job than than martin in that one um so yeah it's it's about a it's a 50 50 i mean i love tony martin's voice also just for the record so um so yeah i i would say that some of the tracks lend themselves better to tony martin's voice whereas others are better for regulans I did not listen to the live stuff. I checked out the bonus disc on the Eternal Idol, where they put the recordings with Ray Gillen on there as a bonus material. And it was pretty good. I think he was a good singer. I prefer the Tony Martin versions, but, um, you know, I liked it. I didn't spend all that much time. I didn't go and, and compare them side by side, track by track. I, I wasn't going to go that deep. But, uh, but again, now we're moving into the Eternal Idol. And when you read about the people that were involved, the amount of people that were involved on that record dropped out, they brought in new people. I was brutal. That must have been really the low point for Black Sabbath. Well, one of many, but a very, very low point. And now we'll hear from Uncle Steve from Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. Tony, I mean, and I'm not a, I've listened to all the Tony Martin albums. Um, and there's, and there are, there's some good stuff on it, but it's, it's never, I've never been drawn in enough to want to go, oh man, I want to listen to all this stuff. Um, I think the best singer that Black Sabbath ever had was Tony Martin, though. <laughs> Here's Melissa from the podcast Metal Chat with Melissa. I saw Tony Martin, not Headless Cross. I didn't see the Headless Cross tour, and I don't know why, because I do love that album, actually. I think it was the Tear tour. Yeah, because it was sort of like a, um, you know, because that's sort of a concepty album. And so when they did the, when they did the show, it was kind of like, it sort of followed this kind of tried to follow the story, if you will. I mean, it didn't didn't feel like a Black Sabbath show, right? It did kind of feel like um, a little bit of everything, right? So it is kind of a cover band in a way, right? Because they're doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, it was a it was it was a night it was a night out. It was you know it was fun, but it wasn't it wasn't what you would call a Sabbath show. Here's Joe Sigler from the fan website black-sabbath.com. Let me tell you one thing first. It's kind of a joke. Do you remember the 11-11-11 press conference when they announced what eventually became 13 and they did that press conference with the award and they all were wearing the black jackets and the, the red flowers and whatnot? Okay, I was made aware of that about three days before the public knew about it because of my website. I was basically ordered, if you say anything, we will never talk to you again, All right. Um, uh, they they made me aware because obviously my site is what it is. I needed to be prepared for that, so I knew a couple headed a couple times, and I was asked when I was told about it 
they, they, they actually ask me my opinion as a fan sometimes to say, what do you think about blah, 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 right? Um, so once they told me it was happening, they said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, I'd rather have a new album with Tony Martin, thank you. Um, they're like, yeah, that's probably not happening. Um, but yeah, so I, I went down that path and you said, what do I think about Tony Martin? There you go. There's another hot take for you. I would have rather have had, I would have rather had a new album with Tony Martin than the 13 album. Now, as I also tell people, when I say things like that, they're like, well, you think Ozzy sucks? No, I don't. He's my preference. I said, we would not have Dio, Ray Gillen, Tony Martin without Mach 1. All eras owe a debt to Mach 1. So, but if you give me a preference, if you give me a choice, I tend to root for underrated and unknown things. It's like I tell people, it's like, like Pat Benatar. It's like everybody knows Pat Benatar mostly for her 80s stuff, but I far prefer her much later material. It's so better, but nobody knows about it because they don't dig into it. And that's like this here. It's like, I, I'm not saying Tony Martin stuff is better than Mach 1. I just like the feel. It, it's got a different feel to me. And that's not something I can quantify with an explanation. It's just something that my brain goes, ah, you know. <laughs> Here's Roy from the podcast, Sabbath Bloody Podcast. So those guys went in to do The Eternal Idol, which is a phenomenal record. I, I actually, it's my, it's my favorite of the Martin era, but I don't even consider it Martin era because of the crossover. Martin was kind of brought in to because they had a falling out with Gillen or whatever during the process. And if you listen to the tracks back to back, he doesn't, he, he, he does a great job. I think he's, I think that's where his strength is, is the hired gun coming in with, uh, I, I feel like with Martin, a bit of his, uh, the stuff I don't like about him is when he has a bit more control over what's being lyrically done and that kind of thing. I, I don't feel like his creativity is to the same level as some other guys. And with the Eternal Idol, so they brought in the fixer for that one, Bob Daisley, basically wrote that album. So another Aussie crossover there. Oh man, what a stud, huh? Uh, have you read his book actually? No, that, that's worth, that's worth uh, giving the, the digital download or whatever. It's very, um, there's a lot of lawsuit stuff with him. So it, it gets a little shady at times. And, but he kept very detailed notes. So a lot of it is like very, it's just like, uh, with the Aussie series I do, I have the Daisley Deets, which are basically just anything he mentions because I, I just think he's maniacal as far as like, you know, he'll like hold on. It seems like he holds on to stuff so he can throw it back at him. Like, yeah, but I didn't get paid for that. But they said they were going to at this certain date and uh, Ozzy was drinking a fucking sarsaparilla. And like, he just like everything is like detailed. Those are the kind of scumbags you want, you want to watch, you know. <laughs> for me... If I'm gonna be like a, you know how there's a no billboard, no Sabbath people, um, no Aussie, no Sabbath people. I'm a no geezer, not really into the other Sabbath that doesn't have geezer on it kind of guy. <laughs> I'm not gonna say no Sabbath because they're all Sabbath albums, and great. But part of what he brings is the song in the songwriting process. I think is 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 completely what I latch onto with Sabbath. And uh, so with this one, Bob Daisley kind of filled that role a little bit. I think he'd be in a bassist as well, but a great lyricist as well. If you look at the Aussie solo catalog, it's basically all Bob Daisley uh, lyrics. Um, I don't know how many lyrics he contributed to this or if it was Ray Gillen, but I think it was mostly a combination of the both of them. And I think that's why Gillen kind of got the boot is because they were button heads. 
Um, but there's certain tracks, the Eternal Idol, the title track is some of the doomiest, awesome, like probably my favorite of the 80s stuff that's not Dio. <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it. It was my favorite of the, the Martin era. And this is about, this is the last um, like major label one before they switch labels. So there's obviously some fallout as far as the fanfare at that time. Uh, again, I didn't see this stuff in real time. There's other cats out there. I mean, you talk to Joe, he'll probably tell you about this era and kind of the, the transition uh, into the, the Martin stuff and what it was actually like for fans at the time. Um, but I know from what I've read, uh, it gets kind of dicey during the Martin era and they kind of become, they kind of gravitate more towards the European market. Um, which we'll get into that that actually happens because of the the content as well i find um their sound kind of this is when they start melding you know i asked jonathan when he first came in contact with the tony martin era of black sabbath and what his initial thoughts were that's interesting too it's, it was right at the start in terms of encountering the physical album because it was on the shelves uh, you know this was pre-download nearly at download age you know i think casal was about to be installed or direct connect or whatnot but at this time it was still buying cds and i like to do that uh, now i'm back with it with vinyl but anyway on the shelf you found this really strange seventh star tony Omi, no black sabbath featuring tony Omi. what the hell is this and then a the sad a sad tony with the you know a fringe jacket and uh, i thought that was fake or something and then i kind of lumped eternal idol together with that didn't have the font, uh, I didn't really, when I looked at it, I didn't feel it. Like, this can't be Black Sabbath. I was 13, so I don't think I <laughs> was thinking that far, but uh, I thought that maybe something that happened quite a bit, actually, also with Swedish bands, is that sometimes the record label and of past, a past record label, have some rights to something, and then they release shit because the band has gotten big. So maybe I got that vibe a little bit, and I also knew that Ozzy left early, even though I didn't study bands like I do today, back then, I knew that he had left and that was my interest, right? Not even the Dio years. So I just left them there on the shelf for 10 years. And then uh, and then it was The Shining, actually. Uh, another pod colleague of mine, he took it out. Uh, he talks about something called plucked riffs, which is uh, basically just yeah picking chords with your pick. Olle uh, from my orig- original podcast, Sleeping Right Now, it's called Gain It For Riffs. It's a riff pod. We stole it from a preset, uh, but we can't tell which product the preset was on. <laughs> but we just liked it. We just liked it. It was like a meme in between us to say that. But I guess, I guess, I, I guess, gain up the amplifier. I don't know. But anyway, he showed me the shining, and and that one I really liked. And I guess I was ready at that time to hear Black Sabbath. I asked Alejandra her overall impression of Tony Martin's performance in Black Sabbath, and particularly on his first album with the band, The Eternal Idol. Uh, I think he does a, a, a pretty good job <laughs> for, you know, for someone who was practically an unknown uh, singer when he was called in, onto the job. Uh, it wouldn't have been easy for anyone to front, again, you know, one of the the most uh, famous and, and and admired bands of heavy metal. So so it, it, it can't have been easy for him. So I think he did superbly for for what he could do because again you know he he came into a situation that was that was very difficult and and stay there for for many years again maybe not receiving all the the credit and uh, and the the respect that he should have for what he did you know he contributed 
a lot maybe not to eternal idol because he just came in to 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 sing the songs that had already been written uh previously only because uh, Gillen either was let go or left i have read and, and heard uh, both uh, versions <laughs> so uh so basically he just came in to to sing you know and, and fill in the vocal tracks but um but from there on you know he was he was uh, one of the main uh, creative forces writing lyrics and you know participating in the whole uh, creative uh, process um you know again i i think he should he should get a lot more credit than 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 he gets either from fans or from uh, ayomi himself right he seems to um to have wanted up to a certain point to almost cancel this this whole era um of black sabbath no just from the fact that that i mean you even even now right you you you, you get um re-editions reissues of all the different uh albums and and it's really difficult to even find these uh these records uh um if you if you wanted to buy them um i know that he's been promising a, a reissue of the martin era records for about at least five years now and uh, i hope that happens soon because um i have my money <laughs> ready <laughs> to be handed out to him whenever he's ready to do that but um but yes um i i think for i don't know i get the impression again from everything that i've read and and that I've heard that um, he he used Martin for you know whenever it was convenient convenient for him to to keep the band going you know as again I read in in some interviews you know he's he he said that he's had people in the band just to keep it going and uh, at at certain points maybe waiting for Ozzy to to want to come back that's the the impression that I get that he just kept the band going and replacing you know some of the of the musicians in the hopes that you know in the hopes of getting again the 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 original lineup together um and uh, and in all of that i think that martin who who seems a really really nice guy you know uh, pretty accommodating and just happy to do the job and of course the thrill to be singing for one of the greatest bands <laughs> in the world um uh seems like he hasn't gotten his fair share of of this whole thing okay so on to some individual tracks earlier on i cut jonathan off when he was talking about the song the shining i think in that song he's good he's very good in that song uh, i didn't think much uh, my friend said this is from the tony martin era but i didn't think much more of it i just listened to the song really strangely enough because i tend to pluck things apart ridiculously but <laughs> at this time i just listened to it and i enjoyed it put it in playlists and I still do. It's a good song. Uh, but yeah, the fact that Tony Martin sang it wasn't a big deal for some reason. It was just this guy, this random guy. And we'll get more into him, I'm sure. But that's part of his problem too, that he's a, a guy, you know. He's just a dude, a bloke, a lad. Funny part here is that another 10 years passes. So it's almost to present day, you know. Uh, so let's say it was 08 or 09 I got into The Shining. I never checked out the rest of the album. It was just a playlist song for me with another singer, a curious pick, you could say. And then it was uh, as simple as this, Rye, Cyber Bloody Podcast. It was simple as that. And at that time, I was not on the same network. I hadn't started Made in A to Z yet. So that was just me as a listener, listening to a great Black Sabbath podcast and realizing how much fun it is to go through actually the entire discography of this band, not just stay with the Aussie plus Dio 
combo, right? Which is nine albums. It's a fair discography, right? But fun to put the rest of them in there. And he was a great, uh, what's the word, cesarone or guide to the, you know, to the experience. I asked Jonathan how he felt Tony Martin fit in overall in the band Black Sabbath. It's a fun one, and I thought about that today uh, while listening prior to recording. And uh, he fits in in terms of actually setting the pitch, you know, nailing the pitch. He's got that right. He's, he's never like out of pitch. He's always on time as well. So he fits in utility-wise perfectly. Like he, he does what he's supposed to do. But that's probably also the weak part, that he's just doing what he's supposed to do. And he's just doing, I'm, I'm guessing now, but it sounds like he's doing what he's told to do. And it even reflects in the lyrics and in the storytelling, I think. It reflects a little bit and not in a good way. Like uh, it's harder to keep track of the story of the song, the theme of the song, when you don't have Dio or Ozzy because their personalities are huge, really huge. And also I, I do recall probably from Sabbath Body podcast then that uh, now actually from YouTube, I think. But anyway, Tony had a problem with this too. And he, I think he said something like uh, at one time, uh, Tony Martin showed someone a video of him. Look at me. And I don't know if you could do that back then. You didn't have phones or tablets, but maybe a picture then. And Tony hated it. Tony Iommi, that is. Like, you don't do that. Showing a picture of himself, like, look at me here. He said, like, that's completely unstar-like. You know, stars don't do that. And uh, I mean, you can say so. It sounds like a, maybe just attitude. But also, if you've been in bands with Ozzy and Dio prior, you have a grasp of what a star heavy metal lead singer is like. You have two very good examples of it. So I think that's where Tony Martin falls a little bit short, and I think that's why those albums are way less listened to. Way less. My, my point of entry, if you wish, into the Black Sabbath catalog was uh, Headless Cross. So there you go. You know, um, I had, of course, listened to, as we have discussed, right, the the classic, some of the classic uh, songs from the from the Aussie era, because that's what you hear on, on rock radio or even on mainstream radio sometimes. Um, but yeah, the first uh, full album that I listened to by Black Sabbath was uh, Headless Cross. And and I just fell in love with Martin's voice from from there on. And uh, uh, and yeah, so I don't know, maybe maybe my my history with the band, my personal history with the, with the band uh, was so that, you know, for me, Tony Martin was was very important in, in in my relationship with with Black Sabbath and and the kind of of uh, music that I like from them. I cannot pretend that I was aware of any of these Tony Martin era albums at all at the time until we get to Forbidden in 1995. You know, getting into Sabbath in around 92 with Dehumanizer, that was a really cool record and I liked it a lot. But considering what all was going on in the metal realm at that time, contemporary Black Sabbath was nowhere on my radar. And if I did hear any of this, I probably would have not paid much attention. Um, and I think that's really what we have to say about Black Sabbath in the 80s. This was a really, really hard time for them because, you know, where they once were kind of the spearhead of heavy music and innovation in the 70s, they were now, you know, it's hard to say, but more or less irrelevant, completely so. Everything they had spawned has now passed them. There was thrash metal going on. Death metal was just around the corner. 
people who were into Black Sabbath for them being the most heavy band on the scene were not listening to them anymore at all. And 1987, Eternal Idols, the same year Appetite for Destruction was released. Ah, that was really tough. So I would say I came into, you know, appreciating the Tony Martin era Sabbath much, much later when I was a little older, more mature and, you know, rediscovering a band's uh, back catalog that I had kind of ignored. Tony Martin's an excellent vocalist. I think he does a great job. I really think uh, he shines on The Shining. Um, it helps that it's a killer track. It's got a great hook. You know, it gets lodged in your brain. You can wake up in the morning and have it there still playing from the night before. I think that one's really great. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty strong song. It's it's definitely one of my favorites. One of the highlights in the album. I agree. It's uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's also one of the first maybe that 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 were written or that. Um, oh no, I'm just I'm just saying nonsense here. Okay, you can cut that out. Um, <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, and for me, it's actually, yeah, I mean, one of the strongest songs, of course, of this whole uh, Martin era. It's a great, it's, a, it's anthemic, if you, if you wish. Um, I particularly like, yeah, the, the, the changes again in, in, in pace and, uh, uh, and the part where it gets, you know, it goes slower, uh, where it goes, you're on, your, you're on your own lonely road. Okay, I'm not even going to try and, and sing, uh, lost in a time. <laughs> yeah. So again, cut that out, please. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I love I love that part. It's really it's really intense, and it really conveys a lot of uh, I don't know. Uh, it it lends itself well to to you know to 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 this kind of singing again, which was very much a, a trademark of of Gillens, I think. Uh, uh, although, as I said, I, I tend to prefer uh, Tony Martin's uh, version of of this one. Um, I th again, I think his voice is more is more metal, like more pure metal, if if that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. And 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 this song to me seems to be that a uh, uh, a very metal song. Okay, unlike some of the others that have more of a bluesy kind of vibe. So most of most riffs are are great, right? Either in in this album or. Uh, or in the others, if uh, even some of the songs in, in later albums that I'm not really a great fan of, I mean, if there's something that you can save out of them is, uh, of course, uh, Ayami's uh, riffs, because they're usually uh, great, they're usually very catchy, and, and they're, the, they're the driving force, right, of, uh, of the song, so. Based on our previous conversation, I asked Alejandra what was more important to her, vocals or riffs? Hmm. I think it has to be. It has to be both. It has to be both. But it's also a, a thing of of pace. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking about what what is considered, you know, a, a classic Sabbath uh, maybe a song, which, as we have discussed, right, tended to be, you know, those slow plodding kind of songs that, yeah, I, I'm not really. I can't really identify with. Um, I prefer songs that are a bit more upbeat, and, and that's not saying that I don't like some slow songs. I mean, there are some some great slow songs as well. Uh, I mean, uh, if you think that, for instance, uh, "Sign of the Southern Cross" is my favorite uh, 
Sabbath song from the Dio era. I mean, and that song is like that, you know, it's quite heavy and slow and, uh, but it, I don't know, it just has a different uh, quality to it. So yeah, for me, it has to be a combination of, of everything. I mean, it has to be a perfect, let's say, mix of everything. It doesn't matter, again, if it's, uh, if it's mostly about the guitar, or mostly about the voice, but it has to be, um, there has to be a sort of harmony between everything. Yes, and definitely not growly voices. I prefer clean, uh, soaring <laughs> sort of vocals. I asked Jonathan about his comments about the Tony Martin albums being way less listened to. I asked him, was it a vocal thing, a guitar thing, a lyrics thing, a delivery thing, or what? So probably then, maybe the delivery then. But, you know, because this is a fine line too, it's hard to pinpoint. Uh, I like to try and elaborate on it, but really what it comes down to is, uh, are you captivated? Are you listening? Like, are you really listening and following the story of the song and it doesn't have to be a good story it just has to be a captivating story you know like uh, on the edge of time uh, it doesn't mean too much right we're lost on the edge of time we're lost children at this of the sea but the way he sings it it brings you right in there and uh, i didn't see them live obviously with tony and i've looked up some stuff on youtube and i think also a pretty good well done performance you know as a stand-in i would give him 10 out of 10 but did he come with his own charisma, his own uh, style? Not really. He sounds kind of standard to me, even the sound of his voice. Yeah, that's where I'm at too with him. I think he's a stud as far as his ability and everything. Uh, definitely a little more polished than what I'd like. There's, I don't find there's much character in his voice, um, which I, and me, again, it's another thing. It's unfair because I'm comparing him against who came before him there. But uh I like him a little more than Hughes as far as what he brought to Sabbath. Um, of course, like he had a lot more time to, to develop. Um, it doesn't really sound like Black Sabbath lyrically. I, I'll be honest, I did not spend too much time uh, dwelling on the lyrics or listening. They don't jump out at you. Um, there's some cool lines in the songs here or there. I believe Ray Gillen wrote some of the lyrics, and I'm not sure. I think maybe Jeff Nichols was kind of involved in, in the, the lyric writing as well. He started playing a a pretty big role in Sabbath in this time. And well, one of the big, big obvious changes here in Sabbath is the keyboards. For the Tony Martin era, the keyboards are everywhere. And sometimes, you know, sometimes a little too much, I have to say. I don't mind keyboards in, in, in metal necessarily, or in Sabbath when used, uh, you know, properly, but I think sometimes they went a little overboard. I would love to hear versions of these songs without all the keys and you know sometimes it's charming sometimes it does go the other way and you just wish it away for me it's a kind of a backloaded record i think on the a side it's only the shining that i'm really into ancient warrior is interesting and then there's three songs that always lose me in a row and then i think uh, the b side is stronger i'm very into scarlet pimpernel the instrumental uh, Lost Forever and Eternal Idol. I think all of them are good. So it's like four and a half songs. You could half mention Ancient Warrior. It's an interesting idea. It goes somewhere. It has this kind of cheeky riff that I really like as well, that is very tony to me, that comes uh, a bit into the song. And also you notice here that his lead tone is very different on this album, because he's known to be sloppy in a cool way, kind of, you know, like blathering his solos out. Here they are very precise, you know, 
probably a lot of white powder in the studio because it's very clean the way it's arranged. You know, you, you can almost see the, uh, to get slightly music nerdy, you can almost see the notation in front of you when he's doing leads, unlike when he's just improvising on the first few albums. I, I like it. I like his old style. I like this style too. Uh, it's cool to hear him attempt something different. And also we're in the depth of the 80s now, right? Almost at the end of the 80s, in a sense. Like this is when the 80s started to end and you were crossing over to Guns N' Roses and, and bands like this in the late 80s. But it's still very 80s, or maybe maximum 80s. Uh, yeah. But I like the lead stuff in there. Uh, I think the singing is good. Again, maybe can't get into the story. Haven't looked up what this ancient warrior is all about. Because it's more, for me, again, about the emotional aspect of it rather than the poetical so if it's like nice poetry that's a bonus and you look at the lyrics and they they look good you know in a way it's, it's hard to explain but you, you know you look at the lyrics and they look like good poetry that's a bonus but for me it's more about uh, captivation being like taken hostage kind of by the singer you know like, now you're gonna listen to this story there's gonna be no other thoughts in your head that doesn't happen in ancient warrior no uh, I think it's a really cool, you know, mid-paced dark rocker. It's got a strong riff, and, and that's where Tony Martin really shines. I like it a lot. Other favorites of mine on this album are uh, Glory Ride. I think that's a really good one. It's galloping riff. And uh, the title track has an eerie and dark. I think the keys are really well applied on that one with the moody guitar. This kind of the doom of Black Sabbath pops up a little bit in that one. Maybe the most Sabbathy on the record. And in a way that reminds me of most of their career, I guess predominantly Dio years because of the overall sound and, and the singing. But uh, I think Ozzy could have done it too. It would have been way different. I think it's just a strong song. It should be re-recorded by anyone because I think you can make this song a few times in different versions because it's well written. It's just a good song. And nice tempo, you know, just throding and uh, some evilness to it, a little bit of ethereal or ambience is good so I, I definitely think any black sabbath fan should at least give you know these songs a, a listen they'll find something in there that they could like yeah i would say that my favorite songs from from that record would definitely be born to lose the shining and, and nightmare those would probably be my my top three songs born to lose um as I told you before, I, I love the song because it, it gives me very strong sort of Badlands vibes. <laughs> it has a, a very bluesy uh, rhythm. I, I love Gillen's version of it. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, it is absolutely my my absolute favorite uh, song in the, in the album. I love the solo, the the drums. Uh, it's a, I like the fact that it's, a, you know, the, the rhythm of the song is, is like, sort of fun is like the kind of fun rock but in a classy way i don't really like the 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 more tacky kind of fun rock you know that you, that you can have I'm not, I'm not gonna name names because <laughs> i don't want to get i don't want to get lots of hate mail or hate dms uh it's uh it's definitely a a, a great great song nightmare um yes nightmare um which uh, I read had been written for or initially, right, to be to appear in the in one of those Nightmare on Elm Street films, but ended up not not being there. So yeah, 
great great song i again i i kind of prefer gillen's version of this one uh because of the way he sings and and what he puts into the song but but yes uh i i really like this this one as well the overall the b-side i can quickly go through that too nightmare has this geoff nichols keyboard intro that i guess is the start of the b-side and uh, then leads into kind of a thumper of a song and i would say it's a I like it. I like the synth intro, intro, and I like how it builds into that thumping type rhythm, which is almost the O'Hara Sabbathy uh, in a way. You know, pretty good song. Nightmare. I don't have anything bad to say about that song. Uh, Scarlet Pimpernel. I love. I think it's great. I think it's a great song. Uh, I don't know why. I think it's uh, maybe you know. I was really into songs like Orchid or Embryo from the earlier stuff, and this is like a longer and more kind of more. Um, fleshed out version of uh, an interlude like that and i think yeah i love that i love interludes in general i think it's like why should every song have the same function on a record i don't get that at all like a record i mean some some really cool records have that because it's just about heavy hitting songs all the way through but in general i prefer when songs play different roles on a record i'm very record album oriented when i listen and this is a perfect example of that you know, if the whole record was like that, that would be very left field. <laughs> but this one song just, <laughs> this one song makes it more Black Sabbath, in my opinion. It makes it more like this is how they work, you know, light and shade, as they always talk about. And then Lost Forever, really good too. Nice high tempo, beautiful lead, beautiful lead work. Uh, I think right before two minutes, uh, uh, Tony Martin sings the title and they break into this very nice lead, which is more so a melodic lead than a guitar solo. I, at least at first and it doesn't sound like tony iomi at all it doesn't sound like him but it sounds great really good good melodies very strong you can see it a bit in the riffs you can see it a bit in the drums this kind of more clean production that they're going for so i think it was influenced by american shred guitarists that uh, play very clean play very orderly and uh, very precise because again tony is not about that he's not a precise player he never was uh, but I guess he could emulate it and fa fairly well at that, you know. I think it comes off great. I don't think it's from his heart. I think it's a little bit emulated, but I don't mind. You know, sometimes an emulation of what you do can be just as interesting or captivating for the listeners. Even if it's not really you, it's still going to be a lot of tone in there, you know, because he's been playing for a while at this point. So he's not going to become someone else. But I definitely think this is a case of uh, the contemporary outside influence, yeah, for his playing. All right, so that's going to do it for Feckin' Metal episode 35. That was Arc Sabbath episode 6.0. I'd like to thank all of my guests in no particular order. That's Jonathan, Roy, Joe, Melissa, Steve, Alejandra and Philip. I appreciate all of your contributions in this episode and all previous episodes of Arc Sabbath. So, next time I speak to you about Arc Sabbath, we will be moving into the era which covered off Headless Cross and Tear, and eventually we'll get to Dehumanizer, the reunion with Ronnie James Dio, which is the period I'm most looking forward to out of the remainder of the career of Black Sabbath. To me, that was a massive return to form when Dio rejoined the band. But, as you all know, this isn't just exclusively a Black Sabbath podcast. There are interesting things coming down the line. And you all know I've never underdelivered on one of these vague statements before. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for more feckin' metal in the near future. That's going to do it for this episode. And I'll see you next time.